1: Right Rug Flooring.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The recently released HBO documentary How Can You Mend a Broken Heart mentions the term blood harmony or bioharmony, that unique blend when siblings sing together. Think the Beach Boys, the Jackson 5, the Everly Brothers, and the Bee Gees. My guest today is Barry Gibb. With his younger twin brothers Robin and Morris, the Bee Gees conquered the world with their ethereal harmonies. Today... Barry misses his brothers. Morris died in 2003, Robin in 2012. I wanted to know if he'd ever considered what kind of solo career he might have had.
3: Well, I I don't know. I know what I wanted. I wanted to be a pop star or a rock star or whatever it is that goes through our heads at that point. At some point in your life, you wanted to be an actor, you know? All I know is that the moment that my brothers began to do individual things and I didn't know about them, and I thought, well, it's okay. I can do individual things too, but I I, I never did that before they did. And, right. and once that began, I thought, oh, oh, wow! They've gone and done this on their own. They've, Morris has done this, or Rob has done this, and it's pretty good, you know. Um, wow! I didn't know that they did that without even a question. So, I figured, well, it was okay. And and once Barbara Streisand came along, I just grabbed the bar, you know. I thought this is right. a wonderful opportunity, and I love her and the idea of working with her i learned so much from that and i think you learn things from just about everyone you work with you just pick up something that you didn't know before who brought you and streisand together was it a producer uh, no it was barbara calling me up about 81 82 and she just called up and said will you make an album with me and so after i got up off of the ground <laughs> i i uh, Told my wife and I told everybody in my family that I just had this call from Barbara Streisand, and of course everyone's going, "You got to do it. You got to do it." And I was terrified. So um, I came to the conclusion that if I call Neil Diamond, you don't bring me flowers, that he might give me some advice. So I called Neil Diamond, and I said, well, "What is she like? What is it? What's the experience like working with her?" He just said, "Don't worry about it. Just go do it." You know, uh, everything falls into place if the stars align. Don't worry. he said she's terrific and
2: she's changeable, but that's fine. Just go with her, you know. When you recorded with her, were you in the same studio for some portion or all of it or not? All of it. We cut all the tracks in Miami at Criteria, which is now the Hit Factory.
3: The interesting thing about Barbara was that if she sang something, she considered it to be sung. She didn't think she had to sing it again. And that's old school, you know, it's like that's how she grew up. And I would say, you know, on, especially on Guilty, first song she sang, I said, Can you give us about four or five tracks? And she says, Well, I just sang it. And I thought, No, no, can you give us choices? Can you give us four or five tracks so that we can pick and choose which are the best moments? But I just sang it. I <laughs> No, no. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Boy, I'm going to try that when I go to work. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. it. It's, I'm like Bob Hope. I'm like, it's yeah, one right. take, fellas. Yes, hope you got it. Was it in focus? Yeah. I hope so. <laughs> Hit the spot, yeah. say the words, and get out. <laughs> yeah. You talk about you know wanting multiple tracks to choose from. When you were recording with your brothers, yeah. uh, was that a rule you had where you had unanimity about what the take was and what, what worked? Yeah. Or was there a decider there? Was there a producer there that you all entrusted the decision to?
3: Um, Myself, but really... Also adhering to my brother's opinions. We never did anything where it was two out of three. It wasn't a democracy, you know. We had to be in total agreement about everything we were doing. So if right. if we love something, we were all one, you know? And okay, what do we do next? What's the next step? Yeah, we need a lead guitar on this, we need something here, we need something there. But we were always in agreement. Uh, real life is is very different. So, you know, we didn't live together, but we did have the van. We did have the minivan with the BGs on the side, you know.
2: <laughs> People talk about the documentary has introduced, at least as far as I'm concerned, it might have existed uh, somewhere else, the term bioharmony. And when I first heard that phrase, I was like, my God, I never thought about that. That they sing differently <laughs> and they interact differently because they're actually related. Right. Do you believe that that's true? I've that never that's heard true? that. I've never heard that. But yeah, I agree with all of that.
3: And there are many different... Side stories to all of that. I mean, the Beatles sound like brothers. So there's a lot, there's a lot about where you come from. The Beatles come from Liverpool. They all have right. the same accent, the same tone, if you like. And so blending together was, was something special for them. You didn't really have to be brothers. And I was talking to a little big town yesterday, and uh, they are incredible. And they all come from the same basic area of the country. So it wasn't that they were blood. It was that they all had the same dialect, the same kind of tonality, you know? And that's Nashville.
2: When you're working with people that are your family, yeah, yeah. and God knows... Um, yes, you have brothers. I have brothers. That? Yes. Uh, in that way that you want everyone to do well you know like i want my brothers to do well and succeed and have what they want and you realize that the business is uh is fragile you know you you, even when you're successful yes when you're with your brothers and you're recording with your brothers and they've been gone for a while now yeah about eight years since robin left so it's eight years now where both of them are gone. And um, uh, when, when, when Morris passed away, was it understood between you and, and, and Rob that you wouldn't continue, just the two of you? No, Robin wanted us to con- wanted to continue,
3: and I didn't. I didn't think it was the right thing to do. I, I, I thought we should suspend the group as it stood. And, and if we were going to work any more together, we would do it as, as the two, two brothers, you know? We wouldn't do it as the Bee Gees. Right. So, but but Robin didn't agree with me. He wanted to continue being the Bee Gees, and but then, lo and behold, what I didn't know is that Robin was getting ill, and as time went on, he became more and more ill. But he didn't tell anybody, and mm. so you could you could see that something was wrong, uh, but you didn't know what it was. And he it it wasn't like he was capable of of, of really doing anything because, in my opinion,
2: he wasn't. You know, he was he was going very frail very quickly. Did you guys, when you went your separate ways, was there always a sense of like the Eagles and like Fleetwood Mac and like CSNY where they profess to have some tension between them, and yet they always got back together because that band together whole was the cash cow for them? It was never going to be as successful as that. Did the Bee Gees go through the same thing where... You you were where each of you had your respective and you had a very successful solo career. Well, the background to all of that, what you just
3: said, is really important. The Cash Cow was not the center of attention because because for us, it was always tough to get paid. Always. That's the that's rock and roll, you know? And we didn't really make any real money until Saturday Night Fever. So success equals money, that wasn't happening for us. Right. So um, we didn't worry about it. What, what we worried about was getting more hits, making more records, writing more songs. You know, That was what preoccupied us. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, when we were doing Children of the World, they would sit along, along the wall, four of them, watching us do the vocals. And they were in the next studio. So the greatest thing about all of those days is that the Eagles, Leonard Skinner, were always in the next room or two rooms away. Right. And in those days, you could visit each other. There was no, you know, you can't come in here. There was none of that, you know. And we enjoyed that. I could go in and listen to them. I played with them all night without coming up with anything creative. We were
2: just having a blast, you know. Was there a sense from you or all three of you that you had something special and that was the hand you wanted to play? Well, it was a brand name, but, you know. Then you're dealing with the brand name, which
3: right. wasn't even called that when we were a group. You know, there was no such thing as a brand name. you As know? branding, yeah. Yeah. So I've had people come up to me at Clive Davis's dinner about a couple of years back. I work for Forbes magazine. I'd like to talk to you about branding. <laughs> <laughs> and I've... I didn't know anything about branding. Yeah, you, know? you got uh, me there. We just yeah. became a group. <laughs> you know. So it wasn't really, this is the cash cow, this is what we got to do. I think it was that way for a lot of people. But I remember the time when RSO, the company, took away our song copyrights without telling us. And so suddenly, they owned all of our songs. How were they able to do that? By forming a company in Holland and playing all kinds of tax games. They managed to acquire all of our copyrights without us knowing. And that caused really like World War Three. I mean, I, so you look at the period when the Bee Gees were in trouble. Look behind the scenes, you know. There was something else going on that was intense. Were you able to get the rights back? Got them all back. But that took a lot of energy out of me. It took me about a year or two to finally get things back in, in our own ownership. I told Robert Stigwood that I would never write another song if he didn't give back the songs and Morris and Rob, they didn't really want to fight. They were still too naive. They just sort of, you know, it's
2: it we're having success. Let's not, let's not argue with it. But did that fall on you to be the more, the business mind in the trio would do the other two were more pure artists. And they were like, Hey man, I really don't have the stomach for that.
3: Well, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stomach the idea that someone could take away your songs. I just couldn't live with that. So If they were okay with that, it wasn't really a matter of that's how they felt. It was more a matter that Robert Stigwood and RSO played Divide and Conquer, you know? So they would nurture and be nice to Robin and Morris, and Robin and Morris wouldn't worry about it, you know? Right. So it's all about that. It's people whispering in your ears. It's the same with every group, you know? Uh, There's always going to be someone in the industry that thinks they can make something out of you if you don't have your brothers. And that was said to Robin,
2: was said to Morris,
3: and was said to me.
2: <laughs> I want to do a movie about your career. I want to do a narrative film. And I want to play the record executive who gets each of you alone in the same That's evening right. and says, you know. Morris, if you just unloaded these two losers, you have no idea That's right. the heights we could hit. That's Listen, right. Robin, these guys are just dead weight around your neck. I mean, your brother. <laughs> I mean, we we've seen every color they have. Barry, I mean, come on, these guys are just dragging you down, man. You know all that stuff. Divide and conquer. But industrial, yeah, not the families, not the wives,
3: but the people who th- who sought to gain from something, or to or in fact to screw Robert Stigwood. You know, so it was a it was a huge industrial game. Ahmed Ertekin and who was the head of Atlantic Records and uh, Robert began to fall out because Jive talking in the movie Saturday Night Fever, uh, Robert only used the live version of Jive talking, so he wouldn't have to pay the extra. You know, and Arif Mardin and Ahmed went berserk because they didn't have a record in Saturday Night Fever. They didn't know it we was going to be successful. In fact, most of the time, I think they doubted us anyway. So when that happened, they were unhappy. They were really unhappy, and so I think that was the cause of a lot of, a lot of crisis points for us as well as Robert.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. If you love conversations with legendary singers be sure to check out my episode with the incomparable Barbara Streisand. We shared lunch and talked about our love for food and Barbara's early dreams of fame.
1: I read Nancy Drew Mysteries. I read movie magazines, you know, and dreamed that someday maybe I could be famous. Did
2: you have that dream then when you were young? Oh, yeah.
1: I would have my pint of coffee ice cream, briars and sit in my bed and dream... Go to the movies sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, the lois Kings, where they had the greatest ice cream. And we also... Well, yeah.
2: Hear the rest of my conversation with Barbara Streisand at org After the break, we talk about disco and how the Bee Gees' soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever in 1977 brought them near-total domination of the music charts and the dance floor.
4: Mom met a lot of your demands over the years. This Mother's Day, get her the Bartesian cocktail maker that makes premium cocktails on demand. Make Mom's Mother's Day and all the 364 days that aren't Mother's Day with a Bartesian cocktail maker at $50 off. Visit com backslash mother now to get $50 off the Bartesian premium cocktail maker. Bartesian, premium cocktails on demand.
5: Head over to columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The Bee Gees distinguished themselves vocally with their lush harmonies. Robin had his distinctive vibrato, Morris anchored the melody, and then, like an ace pitcher discovering a slider, Barry found his falsetto.
3: Well, it first happened on a song called Please Read Me that I did a few different falsetto harmonies to that song, basically because of of the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson. And I forgot all about that. So we were recording nights on Broadway, and Arif Marden, our producer at that point, said, can anybody scream like Paul McCartney? Uh, We all looked at each other and said, well, how do you mean? He said, well, you know, like I saw her standing there and and how Paul suddenly screams a high note. Can anyone, can any of you guys do that? And I said, well, yeah, I'd done something like that way back. I said, but uh, I became the volunteer. Nobody else really wanted to take a shot at that, so I went out there and just discovered it. At first, it was tentative and nervous, and and I didn't know what it was, and then it just began to get stronger and
2: stronger. With you and your brothers, there's such a, a quotient of beauty inside the music. There's so much sensitivity inside of the lyrics and the singing, and I'm wondering, when you would perform live, what was your ritual... If you had one on the day of a live show, did you coddle your voice? How did you prep for a show? I would wake
3: up singing because after a show you lose your voice. It's gone. So the next morning you just hope and pray that it's gonna come back again, you know? So <laughs> when you wake up, you start warming up. So I'd be I'd be doing a lot of this bop, 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 different range stuff, one set of principles for the falsetto, another set of principles for the real voice check out your highest note, do it all day,
2: and it comes back if you're lucky. And how much before you would do a live show, how much would you rehearse prior to going on the road? Rehearsal would you, would usually be
3: about a month with weekends out, so you could work your chops back again. And that way you develop strength and you develop confidence. And these days, I have, I have these three ladies that are amazing. And so any song where Robin might have sung, "They cover me," and they do those things, but um, there's actually nothing like walking from the dressing room to the stage. Nothing like it in the world. Really, I think Bruce Springsteen said it. There's there's something magical
2: about hearing the crowd two minutes before you walk on the stage. Coming, you're getting closer to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music occupies such a unique place. In people's lives and really dwarfs uh, uh, film and television. Yeah. Because film and television is something you have to make an appointment with. You have to sit and watch it. Where That's music true. is something that you, you can have in your you life have anywhere. anywhere. You can be driving. You could be having sex. You could be at yes. the gym. All of the You could be jogging. Music is in your ears at will whenever you want it to be. That's true. And it, therefore, it, I think when people, I always say the same line, when you die... Uh, You don't remember an episode of Seinfeld. You remember, how can you mend a broken heart? You know what I mean? Yes, I
3: do. And then the question then becomes, why? Why does music and harmonics and vibrations and notes mean so much to us? You know, I love Frank Sinatra as much as I love Pavarotti. I love the distant past, the immigrant music, as much as I love country music. I don't have categories you know, I, I just right. love what I love, and, and if I, it's not turning it's good me music. on. music. But why? Why do we all do this, you know? What is the need in us? Uh, so I want to do something about that. I wanna, I'd love to do a program about trying to understand that.
2: I mean, this is a corny question, but, like, have you ever stood there and you were going to sing a lyric that was a, a, a particularly exquisite lyric of one of your most famous songs, and you thought you were going to break down crying? yeah. Have you ever been almost overwhelmed by the music you're singing? Yes, we wrote a song called "Wish You Were Here" for
3: Andy" because he passed away at the age of thirty, mm-hmm. and we wanted to do it on stage, and we never could. so you know we got through about two or three lines and then looked at each other and said, "We can't do this. Oh, okay. We just can't do this it's it it makes it just makes me cry. I just can't sing it. At least the song is there, you know. But yes, that yeah. was a moment. That was a moment. It's all part of it. You're, you're in a way, you're sort of acting, and you're pretending to be someone that you probably don't believe you are anyway. You know, um, the songs always move me. How deep is your love moves me, and uh, and immortality. The song that
2: Celine Dion. I can't believe you said that. Every time I hear that song, I think I would break down if I sang that song. Because just the meaning of that song. You, you, you wrote that song. Yeah. What is that song about in your mind? Well, I think it's, uh, it, it's
3: at some point in your life, you reflect on who you are and what you are and, and the culmination of your opinion. And if you can do that, then everything's okay. You know, so, so for me, it's like, so this is who I am. This is all I know. And I must choose to live for all that I can give, the spark that makes the power grow.
2: But I also find it's kind of a, a poem, if you will, about being a famous artist, you know, like inside yeah. some of those lyrics, I hear someone sitting there going, there's no turning back from me now. That's
3: right. You know, That's right. But we don't say goodbye. And that, to me, is right. the key part of the song. It doesn't matter whether I'm here or not. There are no goodbyes, you know. And it was written for Robert Stigwood wanting a, a song for the stage version of Saturday Night Fever. And we'd already come up with the song, but he wanted the guy in the show to sing it. And I thought, but this is a woman's song. It's a woman's song. Some songs are for women and some songs are for men, you know. So there's a masculinity in some music and there's a femininity in music. That's why I work with Barbara. That's why I work with Diana Ross. And The ability to. to Celine. To, Celine, to lock in to the feminine side, you know, and understand that. A Barbara Streisand still doesn't quite understand what woman in love means, you know. It's. <laughs> it's it, <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a right. I we'll have to call defend. her and get a rebuttal.
3: We we'll yeah, have to get a rebuttal. She says, that. "It's a right. I defend," which is in the song. She says, "What does that mean?" It's a right. I defend, and I did spend some time explaining before the Me Too movement that women can fall in love too without telling anybody. It's not all down to the guy, you know. And I had to yeah. sort of talk her through that. Kenny Rogers still doesn't know what "Islands in the Stream" is about. <laughs> so, <laughs> come on, Kenny. <laughs>
2: Well, let's, let's, let's throw your cards on the table here. What songs that you've immortalized do you not really know what they're about? Come on. It's, it's time for you to fess up. What song have you sang that you don't really get the meaning of? Uh,
3: we never recorded a song that we didn't understand, you know? There were some right, very abstract yeah. songs. Lemons Never Forget, I think, is a very abstract song and not everybody's favorite. Everything had a purpose to it. We began to learn from the Beatles that you could write about anything. Could write about right. life itself, you know, so you had paperback writer and you had yellow submarine and and it was okay, you know, you can write about these things. It doesn't all have to be about having your heart broken or falling in love, or they yeah. went through that, but then they understood they understood something about life. That's where Sergeant Pepper reached its point, the culmination of the peak of create creativity that these guys were giving us, you know.
2: Well, when you, you mentioned Sgt. Pepper, yeah. and I think when you go into Saturday Night Fever, and when you're inside that experience and you're recording the music to that, did they show you cuts of the film? Did you see some footage of the film or the whole film to inspire you to go write the music, or you had to write the music without any cinematic reference point? Uh, Robert sent us a script, but we didn't read it. We
3: just, we just listened to his verbal, describing what it was, which it, to him, it was- So you
2: didn't see the film finished and then write the music? No.
3: Wow. He sent us a script, but we didn't read it. And <laughs> we just said, tell us what you want. Tell us what you think it's, it is. And he, Well, it's Tribal Rights of a New Saturday Night. OK. Right. And this, that was an article by Nick Kahn and- Right. And, uh, in, the, in New York Magazine. Right. And he said, but I need a better name for the film. And I says, well, what about Night Fever? And he said, no, that's too pornographic. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But then
2: in the end, it turned into Saturday Night Fever, and I didn't know. So when you're inside that experience of making that music, yeah. do you kind of know that you're on to something, or you had no idea what that was going to become?
3: We had no idea what it was going to become, and we were trying to reinvent ourselves anyway. We'd just mixed a live album that we'd done in L.A., and... Then Robert called up and said, I need five or six songs for this film with this new gentleman named John Travolta. So, okay, all of that in itself was exciting enough. It sort of kick-started the ideas, and staying Alive was one of those ideas, more than a woman. If I Can't Have You, How Deep Is Your Love, obviously, and Night Fever. So, um, we just started writing. We were 50 miles outside of Paris. We didn't have, you know, television. We didn't have any of those distractions, if you like. And we just got on with it. And about three weeks, two or three weeks, and then we got serious when we got back to Miami and made the records for real.
2: Well, I just want to say, as a reference point, that I am in Washington, DC. I went to college down there first. Uh, My then-girlfriend, who was very much of a nightclub, dancing, uh, she and uh, her roommate, I think it was like three couples, we go see the movie Saturday Night Fever. (laughs) And we said to ourselves, the guys are looking at each other going, Jesus Christ, look at this. You think I'm going to get up there and do that in a room full of people? Like she wants to go to clubs and go (laughs) dancing like this. I said, that's never happening. Right. Never happening. Within two weeks, I had the platform shoes. (laughs) I had my hair blow dried to death. My hair was blow dried like it was some French pastry. (laughs) I put more hairspray. My hair was all poofed out and blown out. And uh, the shirt, I got the shirt open right to open, b- right, below my sternum. <laughs> I'm re- I got the meda- I'm ready. I'm ready <laughs> to go. It was a tsunami. Saturday Night Fever was a tsunami.
3: Yeah, whether you liked it or not, it was <laughs> going to stay around. It was going to stay around. Oh, no, we around. liked
2: it. It was just everywhere.
3: Well, the, my story is that we were starting to shoot Sergeant Pepper, the movie, right? And, and we had uh, Peter Frampton had his own Winner Bagel. And we had one Winnebago between us, and about two weeks into shooting, the same time, "Fever" came out, and all of the dancers in the movie were suddenly dancing to this music at the lunch breaks, and we could hear it from our Winnebago. Like, what's what are they doing? Why are they playing "Saturday Night Fever"? You know, because at that point, it hadn't taken off. You know, and within about a week, we had our own separate Winnebago. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's Hollywood yeah. right there, you
2: know. I don't do it. I don't do it. nothing like success. <laughs> but we made that out. Uh...
3: But we made that movie. The soundtrack to that movie. We're the only other group to record the whole of Sgt. Pepper, with George
2: Martin. Right. So that's something. That's something I'm proud of. How would you describe that experience? You're performing somebody else's music. Oh yeah, but we were learning so Legendary much. music.
3: Yes, legendary music, and we wanted to perform that music, and George Martin was happy to, t- to, to show us the different tricks that, that, that they would all get up to, you know? Uh, the song Sun King or Because, they all sang the same melody once, and then they would sing the harmony all together. Same thing again, all singing the same melody, and then they'd do the third harmony, and they'd sing all that together. So that you've got three guys on three tracks singing each harmony, not three-part harmony, and then you play that back, and it's mind-blowing. Yeah. So we just learned stuff. We learned stuff. Whose idea was it to do the documentary? Uh, well, it was Frank Marshall, Nigel Sinclair, Clair. And uh, they had done the Sonata documentary. They had done a couple of others uh, that they were very proud of. The Beatles, eight days a week, I think they did that. The day that we signed with Capitol was the day I met Frank Marshall. And, and Steve Barnett, the president at that point, Introduced me to Frank Marshall. Frank Marshall said, we're going to do this documentary. And, and tell, us, tell us something about how it began for you guys. And I did. I, I told him a story. And he went, okay, we're going to do this documentary. And that's how it began. But it was, it was two years, two and a half years before we saw anything. You know? uh-huh. And the first cut didn't fly very well. Why? Uh, there were too many untruths. Too many misconceptions that were everyone was saying, well, that's true, but it really wasn't. So mm-hmm. I had to take issue with some of the things. And I know that in the end, some of those things may still be there, but I never, I, I could never watch it again because I can't watch my family pass one up to the other. That's not fun.
2: Barry Gibb. Subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a review. When we return from the break, Barry talks about his regrets, and we'll also hear from his son, Steve.
5: Head over to columbia.com slash PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear.
2: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. That is, of course, more than a woman from the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. It's been a busy time for Barry Gibb. There's the new HBO documentary about the Bee Gees, and earlier this year, Barry released an album of Bee Gees songs covered by some of Nashville's biggest names. It's called Greenfields. These are
3: people I admire the most. These are country artists that have always been in my blood. So ever since I was a child, Dolly Parton has, has been a really important part of music for me. in. Was, and them all to me i wanted to get people i admired the most to sing our songs and maybe it's volume two that it will happen in the future i don't know but this was great fun and i was more than intimidated but it wasn't in my hands it was in dave cobb's hands now when you say
2: you were more than intimidated absolutely
3: uh, how, how so well um how many people do you truly admire you know, so when you're in their company, you just feel, when I meet Paul McCartney, I, I don't know what to say. I, my, my mouth won't, won't say anything, you know. All I can say is, I feel fine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and you, granted, they must have been intimidated to sing your music as well. Oh, yeah. No, it was all the way around. There's no question about that. The only
3: person I think was not intimidated by any of us was Dave Cobb, the producer.
2: So he was the decider. He was the he decider. He was the decider. He was the director. Well, the cut you do with Dolly. Yeah. What a beautiful rendering that is of that song. When you hear other people sing your songs. Yeah. What goes through your mind?
3: It's a very flattering thing. It's like any time over the years, anyone sang one of our songs. It's someone's covering your song. That's a huge compliment. So. I have the same feeling every time, and and that goes back a long, long way. So anyone singing our songs is, wow, why did that person sing our song?
2: Now, when someone wants to sing your songs,
3: is it open to anybody? Anyone who records our song doesn't need to ask us. They don't. It's just the way it works. No one needs to ask us to sing one of our songs. If you're using one of our songs in a movie or in in a sync license, like a commercial, Right. You have to ask, and you have to make a deal. Sure. But beyond yeah. that, anyone can record our songs.
2: But they pay you the royalties for you as the songwriter. Well, it
3: will be, we'd be paid indirectly by the system that works, like mechanical right. royalties and, and things like that. Sure. But uh, what the only question I ever had was, I don't like commercials about alcohol. I don't like commercials about cigarettes. Is it true that you have a uh, someone's making a feature film about the Bee Gees? Yeah, the biopic's in its own process right now. Graham King is in charge of that. He did the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. Right. Are you going to have some participation in that? Absolutely. I'm sort of in agreement with Graham, and that is that sometimes the story can be a little
2: different than the truth, but not too much. You more than your two brothers, um, I'll say this only because this is my recollection of it, you know, you guys would get out there and sing... Uh, When you watched you sing on film, you know, it's a different story when you're just listening to the music, but when you'd watch you sing, your brothers are um, pretty straightforward musicians. And here you are, and the hair, yeah. and the clothes. He was like this preposterously handsome guy. And then you'd open your mouth, and you'd sing these like, heart-stoppingly beautiful songs. And I want to ask you that when the Bee Gees were at the zenith, when everything right. was just clicking for you, right. what was the best part of it, and what was the, what was the downside of it for you? You know, I, I, there's a lot of things I
3: regret. Saturday Night People wasn't something I regretted. I didn't like people disregarding us after fever. I thought that was unfair, but, right. uh, but that's the industry, you know, it, it, it's very fragile. As you said earlier, it, it, it will, it will turn on you in, in a heartbeat. And so I think generally what I regret is, is, is that we became overexposed. And I think that that was from fever. Yeah. Yeah. And everything else It was just it, having five songs in the top 10 or three songs in the top five, we were becoming pretty tainted, you know? We were we were beginning not to really appreciate having a number one record, but we equaled the Beatles record. We had six number ones in a row,
2: and that was all right. I can live with that. I can live <laughs> with <work>. that. That'll <laughs> work. That'll work. You know. But I mean, my other thing is that I find that the business is that people tend to look at something that's super successful and say, "Well, if it's successful, then it's like potato chips. It can't be really that." Uh, right. Great. It's just, yeah. it just, it's like a snack food. Right. It's, if it's something that appeals to the general public, to masses of the general public, yes. if you're selling tens of millions of records, it can't really be that it's good. It's too commercial. Right. 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 Did you, get, you got a whiff of that?
3: Yes. But, I, you know, I look back a long way and I see the final year of Elvis's life, the final year of the Beatles, Michael Jackson, and how they began to fragment, you know, yeah. and, and, and because nothing ever really lasts. Uh, a group is not a natural state to be in, unless you're relatives, unless you're brothers or sisters. So I see all that. I see that in the end, people like Elvis, Michael, Beatles began to
2: make records that weren't quite up to the scratch of Sergeant Pepper was. But well, when the disco Inferno, if you will, dies down, what happens to your songwriting when you realize that's Petered out, that way. Uh, well, because
3: of the backlash, we didn't base our lives on fever. We just sort of well, back to the studio, you know. That, uh, we were, uh, you know, I've been married for 50 years now. Last September <sighs> was 50 years. And, and, and I've had a wonderful time. I, you know, I, I love this, that woman, and we've been together for that long. And so I, I always had her at my back. I, always ha- I, I, never, I never had to be out there on my own. You had a home. Uh, family. Uh, uh, so at yeah. the end of fever, we were starting to raise kids, you know. And so the distractions were plentiful. They were plentiful. And, you know, even when that happens, you think to yourself, I know I thought to myself, well, maybe that's it. That was warm. That was great. That was wonderful. Maybe go back to Australia. Maybe go back to England. And you start to question your life. Uh, and if it's time to change your life, that was the moment that you could have done it.
2: Speaking of family, your son plays with you from time to time, correct? Yeah, Stevie. Yeah, he's right here. Your son Stevie plays with you. And he also plays some other types of music. He's like into heavy metal or something? Absolutely. Right. We need Stevie to come on just for one second. Tell us, does he get the bends when he goes (laughs) from the music of Barry Gibb to the music of Metallica or whatever you're doing? What's the seam in between that kind of music?
6: You know, I grew up watching the Bee Gees. I stood on the side of the stage as a kid and I thought my dad was the coolest guy on planet earth. You know, I really did. But what happened was, is there was a band called Kiss that came out uh, around a similar time. And that was my introduction into hard rock and heavy metal. And I was always fascinated with the guitar. So, Mm. you know, when I saw a guitar that was on fire, I said, okay, I I don't know how or when I'm going to get to do that, but I got to figure out how to do that and i knew enough to know that being a musician and being barry gibbs son was probably a terrible idea and i (laughs) I knew that from a young age so i followed my joy with the guitar and that took me a lot of places i i've you know i've played in a bunch of heavy metal bands over the years like uh, black label society crowbar kingdom of sorrow and the thing is is that I figured it made me different enough that I could maybe carve out a career and not be compared to my dad. Right. If right. that but makes you're singing, sense.
3: You're singing good now. Right. Well, right.
6: what happened right. is my dad and I have always kind of, you know, messed around a little bit, you know, writing songs and stuff like that. So, you know, I I got to learn about songwriting from the best, you know, and I got to watch the Bee Gees write many times over my, you know, the course of my life. So I'm I've been a student of theirs. But, you know, when, when Robin passed away, Dad was clearly struggling to figure out where to go in life. Yeah. And at that point, I was like, Dad, you got to channel this into music. Like, you can't sit here and, and, and mourn forever, you know? And he said, OK, well, let's do, let's do a show. And I said, yeah, you should do that. And he goes, well, I only want to do it if you do it with me. I mean, I definitely didn't feel like I could step into those roles that Robin and or Morris had. But <laughs> right. yeah. over the course of a few years, uh, you know, with his patience and uh, and kindness, I found my place with him. You know, I, I sometimes joke that I'm his emotional support animal. But the fact of the matter is, is we've come to understand that even especially recently, now I know how to harmonize with him, which I didn't really know how to do. I began to learn that really by being thrown in the fire with him. And to be honest, it's been probably the greatest gift of my life to come full circle and actually be with him making music. We toured
3: Australia. Yeah. We toured England. We toured America. And uh, that was an incredible year uh, of just finding yourself again.
2: Stevie said that he... Thought his father was the coolest guy. Let me tell you something, Stevie. Your father is the coolest guy. <laughs> Your father reminds me of Nat King Cole. Oh, I love Your father Nat reminds Cole. me of a guy that could sing and just bring you to tears. He was so beautiful and the wow. songs were so beautiful and he Thank sang you. them Thank you. perfectly. <laughs> and then when you'd watch him on film, do you'd go, my God, he's also the coolest guy I've ever seen in my life. Look at this guy.
6: You know, I don't know that anybody will ever be able to relate to this because I do feel a little unique in that I've had this experience, but I think that for me, we all have great memories throughout our life, whether it's the, you know, the birth of our children or, or, you know, that first big accomplishment that you make or whatever it is in life. But I, I have to tell you that I was talking about that show that we did after Robin died and there was a moment where he was singing, and I was off to his right uh, mm-hmm. on on stage, and and he was really in a. I have to say, he was kind of transcending into another level in front of my eyes. I was like, yeah. I could not. I, I was reduced to tears while I was on stage watching him sing because, you know, I remembered being a very small kid standing on the side of the stage, going, "Hey, Dad, you know, I'm over here," type of thing. And then to, you know, 30 something years later, I'm standing on stage with him and there was a moment where he took a breath and just looked at me and it was, he winked at me and there was the most pure expression of love with no words between a father and son in that moment. And I remember thinking to myself, I'll never forget this moment for the rest of my life because... There are no words for that kind of love between a son and a father. And I tell him this all the time. I said, Dad, it's okay that you don't think you're the greatest of all time. But just don't ever forget that there isn't a second that I don't believe that you're the greatest of all time. Just be true to yourself and and do what you love because his love is pure and his expression of it is incredible and I'll never get tired of
2: it. Listen, I say this only because it's true, and I feel that we all are seekers of the truth here, truth and beauty, and that is, Stevie, your father knows full well that he's the greatest of all time. He knows. (laughs) And this modesty thing, is just a part of an act. It's a part of a public... It's always like this, oh, thank you. Oh, God, that's so nice of you to say that. Oh, thank you. No, no, please. No, no, please. Your father's fully aware of who he is and what his... Towering achievements in the music industry are him and his brothers, and him on his own for, for that matter. I want to say, I have loved you and I have loved your music. I mean, I'm t- good music is good music, and I have loved you and I have loved your music forever. I mean, I have Thank so you, many Alec. Bee Gees albums, so every now and then I gotta hear I Can't See Nobody. I play that song, and I'm yeah.
3: like, Oh my you god, you know, I Can't See Nobody was written in a dressing room with strippers.
2: <laughs> I thought it was, you were like in church. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of, it's one of my it greatest memories, you know?
3: Uh,
2: Bare be, bums and here's a song, you know? <laughs> Let's stop right there and let me just say, I'm so grateful to you. You are one of the greatest musicians that ever lived. And one of the greatest vocalists that ever lived. And I never get tired of listening to your music, never. You're very kind. Thank you both for making time to do this. This has been a joy. This has been a real joy. It's Thank been you. a real joy for us, too. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Produced by Kathleen Russo, Kerry Donahue, and Zach McNeese. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Thanks for listening.
3: Am I unwise to open up-